All right, this morning, uh, speaking of the corruption that we've been interacting with, this high calling exists that we have begun this year reminding ourselves of, this privilege of worshiping the one true God. It is the ultimate reason why you and I have ever drawn breath, why we are created, why we gather. Uh, let me just public service announcement. I got too many things to say besides the message here. Um, this, this, is, this is not a, a chiding moment, but it is a, a, a helpful moment. Um, so grateful for our time of, of worship and singing. And, and, and if I had to draw a graph, you know, as to what that worship and singing, the pouring out of our affections, which is what that really is. What did, what did that graph out like this morning as we gathered? Well, you probably, in my opinion, started kind of low, took a while, began to feel and sound like poured out affections. Uh, can we talk about this initial piece here? Right, there is this unique thing happening on Sunday mornings. It is unique to your week. It is a moment where the people of God all gather together to sing God's praise. That is not a liturgical issue, like the church invented this thing. Like, hey, hey, what can we do for an hour and a half? Well, we could sing a little bit and we'll do some announcements. No, no, no. When you read the Bible, God calls us to sing. It's all over the place. God calls us to sing. Uh, God calls all of us to do a bunch of things that may not be on our list of things that we would get around to doing. But when they're on his list, that should change everybody's list, right? So God calls us to this unique place of singing, of coming together and pouring out our affections through the vehicle of music and song. Uh, my observation is, is we are slow to do that every week. It starts at 10, not at 10.15. Right, so... Can you be here for 10? I'm pretty sure. Can we hustle through the lobby? Yeah, get here earlier if you want to talk, right? And I'm guilty of this, right? I'm coming, I'm seeing somebody I haven't seen. I'm, I'm trying to get here. All of a sudden, here the music is going. Uh, it is a unique privilege to stand in the presence of God and sing to him. We are human beings who only deserve the wrath and judgment of God. So... Maybe I'll say this every Sunday when I get up to speak to remind us, hey, next Sunday, let us be prepared, not casual. Let's be prepared to come speak to him in song. Getting here quickly, being prepared for Keith or Stephen to lead us into the presence of God every Sunday morning. All right. I haven't even started to preach yet. I'm here looking at my watch here. We're in trouble. Um. All right, so this privilege of worship into that setting has come this thing called corruption. And, and it wants to pull on this thing that God has given to us as this ultimate calling in our lives. And we've labeled warfare the thing that's pulling on our worship. And we've, we've learned warfare comes in the form of the devil. The devil is part of the warfare. Warfare comes because of the world that we are a part of. It speaks to us. It influences us. It's available to us every day. Uh, this morning, I want to take us to the third biblical category of warfare. And that has to do with warfare that is within us. And it is unique. 
and I would tend to say it's the most prevalent warfare you're experiencing. That's my opinion. Uh, I think it's more prevalent than the devil. I think it's more influential than the world. But they're all together part of this warfare. And so I'm going to let you hear from what I would call the patron saint of inner warfare. Today I'm going to introduce you to a historic Christian man named John Owen, who has probably written more, published more, uh, about the battle within us and how to manage that. But he's not a recent guy. He is a man from the 1600s. Uh, I'm going to quote Kelly Capick, who is an editor of a modern version of a, a piece that Owen had written called Overcoming Sin and Temptation. And in that it says this. In, 19, in 16, probably, pardon me, 1656, Owen first published Of the Mortification of Sin in Believers. In 1658, that volume was slightly revised in another short treaty of temptation. The nature and power of it was printed. Owen's exploration on these practical subjects are further unpacked in his book. He wrote this one about 10 years later. The nature, power, deceit, and prevalency of indwelling sin. Capic says this, crucial, crucial to resisting sin and temptation, according to Owen, was an understanding of what you are fighting. Here, Owen focuses on the power of sin, listen, not as it exists out there, and it does, but as it exists within a person. Christians are called to war against sin. According to Owen, this means... They are called to learn the art of battle, which includes understanding the nature of sin, the complexity of the human heart, and the goodness and provision of God. And I hope we're going to cover all three of those in introducing this. But I, I, would, I would want you to do a little blood test here and see. You could be a Christian that chooses one of those to the ignoring of the others. And it will be very hard to fight the battle of living in a corrupt world and living for the glory of God. If you don't know how to war against sin, learn the art of battle, including an understanding of the nature of sin, the complexity of your own heart, and the goodness and provision of God. Can I just tell you, I've sat in a gazillion counseling meetings. I've sat with people who have read good bits of their Bible, who have read good doctrinal theological things, and they are twisted in the wind at, the, at a moment in life. And one of the reasons that is prevalent is they don't understand themselves. They've not allowed the truth of God to shine light upon their own souls. We are more aware and more noticing the sin that's out there. And we tend to get caught off guard by the sin that's in here and how it operates. So I, I want to hopefully help us in that. Owen argues that humility is crucial to growth in the Christian life. And proper humility comes from a due consideration of both God and oneself. If you'll read the Bible honestly, you will find the Bible doesn't mind speaking in both categories. It doesn't just talk about God, and it doesn't just talk about man. It talks about both. 
So today I want us to get better educated about what's going on inside of me that maybe I haven't fully understood. It may clarify why am I struggling in this area? Why am I so discouraged in this area? Why does this not seem to be changing in me? What, why is some of my life so frustrating as I, I, I learn great things about God and then I'm just trapped in this swamp of life? All right, but this might be the means through which God helps you see there's an art of war that needs to be learned because it has to be fought and the Bible actually calls us to fight it. So today I want to introduce us to what's going on on the inside. If you read the cartoon character Pogo many years ago, he says, we have met the enemy and he is us. It's a strange acknowledgement, isn't it? Because it always feels like the enemy is somebody else. My kids are going to rag me for this, but I have to use a Lord of the Rings illustration. Um, there is a moment, actually, if, you know, if you're a reader, you read J.R.R. Tolkien's works, I, I watched the movie. There's a moment when this line gets said that it is so biblically profound that I, I'm, I'm, it's, it's not a tearjerker moment in the movie. Uh, it is for me, though. So there's a moment, if you know the story of this ring, is this strange representation of something that, that tends to have this power and ability to corrupt everything it touches. And along the way, there is this storyline of these little hobbits who are, Frodo in particular, a hobbit, who's supposed to take the ring, he's charged with this, all the way to Mount Doom and destroy it. So if you will, the ring is, is it's, it's sin in, in the world. And he's going to be able to take it and get rid of it. Finally, the world can be rid of it. That's what he's after. But he notices along the journey that the ring has this weird ability to reach into everybody's inner psyche and mess with them and turn them into something that they were not without the ring. It corrupts them from the inside out. And the movie depicts the ring is actually whispering their names. So at some point, the friends traveling with Frodo, they hear their name whispered by the ring. And it calls out to them uniquely and advertises something that's inside of them that they really, really want. And suddenly they're hooked. And now they're going to turn on Frodo. And Frodo figures that out early on, that my companions, my friends, they're going to kill me over this ring. It's going to corrupt them. So he decides he's going to leave all of his companions, go it alone. That's his only protection. He can't have anybody travel with him because they could get corrupted. And the leader of the pack, a man named Aragorn, discovers Frodo's plans. And he's kind of a little bit shocked. And he, he's a warrior. He tells Frodo, Frodo, I, I took an oath to protect your life. He's shocked. And Frodo asks the most theologically profound question. Frodo answers back, but can you protect me from yourself? See, Aragorn's idea is there's bad people out there in the world. There's a bad stuff out there. There's evil out there. And I'm here to protect you from it. But Frodo is aware, Aragorn, the evil's not just out there. It's inside of you. Can you protect me from yourself? Now, the reason why that brings tears to me is because I'm aware. My origins as a human being are from Adam. That's my neighborhood. That's where I come from. There is corruption operating in me. 
And there are people in my life that I love. And you wonder, Lord, what will protect them from me? Have you thought that about yourself? It's not until you're scared of yourself that you know you need to run for help, right? When you think you got this, I'm not that bad a guy, right? That's the pride problem in this equation. We are self-ignorant, so therefore we kind of trust ourselves in a way that the Bible doesn't call us to do that. The Bible calls us to be more desperate than that about ourselves. Therefore, we have to look somewhere else for help. But this is where self-ignorance hurts us. Because if you think you're, well, you know, hey, Keith, I'm, 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 I know people worse than me, okay? Um, pay more careful attention to yourself. And you may not be sure you do know somebody. Paul said of himself, of sinners, I'm chief. There was an awareness that whatever God is going to be to me, let me just tell you, I know I need him to be that for me. And if you're not convinced of that because of self-ignorance, then you might hear about a great Savior out there, but you're not running to him. You've got no reason to run to him. You got this. But you're sure glad he's a great Savior, full of righteousness, done wonderful things, right? Well, from Pogo to Paul, let's see what Paul has to say about this war within Romans chapter 7, verse 21, he says, So, Paul says, I find it to be a law that when, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. If you've not read this verse before and you're hearing it for the first time this morning, maybe you maybe read it once but didn't pay careful attention to it, you're, you're kind of saying, hey, yeah, yeah, I, Paul thinks that's kind of what my life feels like. A lot of good intentions that I don't, I don't tend to get around to them. A lot of commitments. I'm never going to do that again, only to repeat some kind of destructive pattern in my life over and over again. You know, these stick out in categories, and they get more published if you're talking about you know, people who have drinking and drug issues. Kind of, you know, they, oh, there's always this big talk and this commitment. I'm not going to do that again. Uh, but there's a war going on on the inside that they may not know how to fight is a biblical explanation for that war. And many of you guys will remember, I walked, I had a brother who died a few years ago. He lived in this battle zone. He drank himself really to death. He started drinking when he was in high school and fought battles off and on. Along the way, I believe he genuinely got saved. I remember just seeing fruit from his life and genuine repentance and seasons that interrupted the dominance and control of a bottle in his life, followed by seasons where the war within was being lost that eventually took his life. So there is for us, you know, those kind of categories. But can I just tell you, there's some of us here this morning who, who don't run to a bottle. We just run to something else, though. 
we, we run to fears and control and patterns of neglect or, or laziness. Things that we just, we just wish that would just stop. We don't want to be that way anymore. All right, so can everybody, don't raise your hands. Can everybody just get in touch with the fact, is there something about your life that you wish was not characteristic of you? Is there any Christian here who can say, oh yeah, the second I discover what that is, I go after that, check that box, and I'm done. (laughs) If you are, I'm pretty sure you got saved yesterday. (laughs) The rest of us are trying to figure out, you know, a bunch of boxes have been checked in my life, but this one and that one and this one over here, man, frustrating, right? Kind of sound like Paul, wretched man that I am. Why do I keep doing this? So that's what's on display here. Now, If you have read this verse many times and you've studied Romans, you will know that not everybody agrees this Paul's an unbeliever, a believer here. Maybe he's an unbeliever. Maybe this is what it sounds like for somebody who doesn't know Christ to battle with sin. And there'd be a variety of theological viewpoints. Uh, Most would not say that, but some would say, hey, and, and the reason why is because if you read all of Romans and the rest of the Bible, Paul says a lot about himself besides this. There's work that God has done that is off the charts. Amazing. He claims to be a new creation in Christ. There's something new going on in him. There's a new identity and a new power source in his life. And he's clearly saying that is true of me. Man, I don't have enough time to do all this. There's another thought coming in my head. All right, can I just install this visual for you? This is why the Bible can sound a little bit bipolar in some of these questions, moments. Like it's saying two things. How can it be saying both of those things at the same time? All right, here's our historical moment as believers. From Adam on, the age of corruption, if you want to call it that, exists. Everything in creation is corrupted, and it's under this age of corruption, right? So it moves forward in time. And then we, we're introduced to this idea that there's coming a day of a new heaven and a new earth. A new age is going to dawn. So... So in a time sense, the age of corruption, the future age. And then God decides to do something. He he decides he's going to take every action needed to bring this age to an end and release us from its power and bring us into a new age. And he does all that in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that happens right here. But if you keep reading the Bible, the age of corruption goes past the cross and continues, doesn't it? But God insisted that the future age would intrude on this age. So he takes this coming age and he sticks it back on top of this age. And so they overlap in a little brief moment right here. And where, if you, I can say this, two things are true at the same time. We still live in an age of corruption. As profound as some of these verses are going to say, because they're describing the finality of all that will be. But all that will be is intruding on what still is. So as long as the devil breathes in this world, as long as the fallenness of humanity is still around, you know, you can kind of pinch yourself and go, okay, not in heaven, not in heaven. Which means everything you're appropriating still has corruption touching it. Unlike when you are in heaven, when that day will come to an end. But that is not this day. This is why you just can't, well, this is what was accomplished at the cross, and this is what the Spirit does. Yeah, and and you got a war on your hands. 
You will not have a war on your hands in the new heaven and the new earth. Not an ounce. Not you're going to bang all the weapons into nothing and we're going to end in just eternal peace with God and with everything that God has made. That is not this hour. You live in a war zone right now. Corruption still exists. And God has said, you know, I'm going to intrude on this corruption with what's coming. So they both exist simultaneously, right? Let me just give you a little perspective. John Piper says, Some say Romans 7 is Paul's description of his experience before he was a Christian, and some say that it is his description of his experience as a Christian. Well, I think the second position is right. Paul is speaking about himself here as a Christian. Let me say immediately that I do not mean we should settle in or coast with worldly living and a defeatist mentality. We should not make peace with our sin. We should make war on our sin. Defeat is not the only or even the main experience of the Christian life. But listen, but it is part of it. If you have the theology that never has you failing, you've got a heaven theology and not an overlap theology. You're going to have moments. He says, I agree with J.I. Packer, who wrote an article on this passage two years ago to defend the view that I'm taking here. Packer said, the wretched man is Paul himself spontaneously voicing his distress at not being a better Christian than he is. And all we know of Paul personally fits in with this supposition. Take a lesson from the Apostle Paul who could consider himself chief among sinners and who could make a statement like, wretched man that I am. Because, you know, I hear this. Just make sure you're aware, again, of yourself. Because some would say, if I came to the conclusion that sounded like wretched man that I am, I would be so depressed and so unmotivated. I would, you know, I'd just be paralyzed by that. But can I just ask you, is is Paul paralyzed by that? Do you see the Apostle Paul sitting under some condemnation zone that, that he has looked at himself and he's saying, man, I'm so sick of doing this. What is wrong with me? That's what he's sounding like in this moment. But he's going to go on and change the world. He's going to write doctrine all over the place. He's going to serve the kingdom of God. He's going to worship God. He's going to live for the glory of God in this earth while he recognizes, I'm not always having a great day. I'm not always the best guy around. So if if feeling bad about yourself makes you close parts of the Bible, can, can, you, can you be aware that's not coming from the Bible, it's something within you that you need to be careful that you're not forcing the Bible to be quiet in a category that is here written prolifically. Piper goes on and says, so I think that Paul is saying it's not that Christians live in continual defeat, but that no Christian lives in continual victory over sin. Nobody should want to live this way or settle to live this way. That's not the point. The point is when you do live this way, this is the Christian response. No lying, no hypocrisy, no posing, no vaunted perfectionism. Lord, deliver us from a church like that with its pasted smiles and its chipper superficiality and blindness to our own failures and consequent quickness to judge others. God, give us the honesty and candor and humility of the Apostle Paul. So this is the view I want to defend, Romans 7, is part of 
Christian experience. Not ideal, but real. All right, so right now some of you are going, I, I don't agree with Piper. And I, I don't think that's who Paul is in Romans 7. All right, well, can I just foolproof this? Because I have been on both sides of that argument. Um, can I just say the rest of the New Testament is so clear in this category that there is a war going on within you? That sounds a lot like what Paul said in Romans 7, and it clearly is speaking to Christians. Romans 5, verse 16, Paul tells the Galatians, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. All right, so that's not Paul speaking to unbelievers. Unbelievers cannot walk by the Spirit. Paul would never have an expectation that a person who doesn't have the Spirit could actually walk by the Spirit. So he's telling Christians to walk by the Spirit while the desires of the flesh are still in play. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Like Paul said in Romans 7, the things I'm doing, I don't want to do. I want to do something else because God's put new desires in me. I want to do that. He says it again here. The desires of the flesh they're working in such an opposing way that I, I, there are moments where I ended up doing what I don't want to do. I don't want to do those things, but yet I'm still doing them. Now, notice, notice these other desires, they exist simultaneously. They're, they're together in the same package. And the desires of the flesh, they're not going to feel like they're something apart from you. They're going to feel like they're yours. Your desires, something in you in a moment, you're going to have to put this under a microscope and, and stare at it to see, wait, wait, but that's the desire of the flesh and this is the desire of the spirit. Because when the desire shows up out of nowhere, it's going to feel like you. That's what makes this unique. It's not like when the world comes at you and the devil comes at you. No, no when this comes at you, it comes from in here and it feels like it uses your voice and it sounds like you. And it can easily be hard to defend yourself against that showing up that way. Right? So that's Paul speaking to Christians in, Gal- in Galatia. Uh, James speaks to Christians as well in James 4 when he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? There's a war going on on the inside of you. Did you know that? James says, hey, I know, I, I know you know what's going on out here. You're having fights and quarrels. You're not getting along with each other. But can I, can I tell you where that's coming from? Can I tell you the war out here is because of the war that's in here? And listen to what he says. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight. And quarrel. Now, James doesn't use the precision of Paul and say, your flesh desires. No, he just comes right out and says, you desire. You desire something. There's something going on in you that's become murderous on the outside. But before you murdered anybody, it was a desire on the inside of you. Did you know that? Did you know before these fights and quarrels broke out, 
there was coveting going on inside of you. Did you know that about yourself? Did you know you wanted something really severely on the inside that when it gave birth to something, it turned into a harsh comment or a critical statement or a fight with another person? And, and, and listen, when we come in for counseling, it's like, hey, could, hey, pastor, would you mind being a referee? Here was our fight. He said this. She said that. We went back and forth. And it's almost like, okay, we just, well, we just want to solve the argument. We just want to fix who won the debate there. Or do we want to pull on this and say, where did that debate even come from? You wanted something. And when you couldn't get it, for whatever reason, it turned hostile. It became something on the outside. But where did the outside come from? It came from within. It came from this conflict of things on the inside of us. And be careful. This war is hard to discern because just like James doesn't adjust language, he says your passions are at war within you. Yours. You desire and you covet. This is going to feel like you. And you're going to defend it and you're going to feel justified and you'll have reasons. Right? So this is what's on the inside of us according to the Bible. And, and then we live in a world that loves to play the blame game. Right? All the conflicts, they're all about somebody else. Somebody else's policy, somebody else's decision, somebody else's attitude. Somebody said something. Somebody started it. And, and so we'll, we'll set all of our focus in a biblically ignorant way. And we're going to fight all kinds of wars about the ideologies of people. And what you do. And you always. Right? So next time you and your spouse are in a fight where it sounds like you always, you always... Back up for a moment and say, hey, let me just figure out, before I try and adjust this person, let me see if I can figure out what is going on in me. Because before the war gets out there, it's already in here. And remember the overlap. You're not in heaven yet. The corruption that Adam had, it's still in you. You got resources, and we'll hopefully talk about that before I run out of time. Here's what's going on inside. Let's sit with Mr. Owen for a second. Here's the war he describes with indwelling sin. He says, there is a particular way of contending. This indwelling sin, it fights or wars. That is, it acts with strength and violence as men do in war. First, it lusts, stirring and moving inordinate figments in the mind, desires and the appetite and the affections, proposing them to the will. But it rests not there. It cannot rest. It urges, presseth, pursueth its proposals with earnestness, strength, and vigor, fighting and contending and warring to obtain its end and purpose. He goes on and says, it carries on its war, listen, by entangling of the affections. Why is that word important to us? Because worship is always about the affections. You got high thoughts of God, but you got no affections. You don't yet qualify to call that worship. Worship has affections attached to it. It's grown to such a level of importance to us that our affections go out toward it. And that's what Owen is saying. It carries on its war by entangling of the affections and drawing them into a combination against the mind. Let grace 
be enthroned in the mind and judgment. Yet, if the law of sin lays hold upon and entangles the affections or any of them, it hath gotten a fort from whence it continually assaults the soul. Hence, the great duty of mortification is chiefly directed to take place upon the affections. Do you understand how challenging it is in a warfare that comes from within to to rid ourselves of the competing values that stand in the way of my affections going toward God? Then this obviously helps us relate to each other, but it, it, it is interfering with my affections toward God because there are things that I want. And somehow those things are often ignorantly informed. And there is this warfare going on within. And it wants to grab what I want and sell it to me. And once it finds my affections, it's got an angle to work. Owen says, now then, when this law of sin can possess any affection, whatever it be, love, delight, fear, it will make from it and by it fearful assaults upon the soul. For instance, hath it got the love of anyone entangled with the world or the things of it, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, how it will take advantage on every occasion to break in upon the soul. This is why it's so important to understand what is it that I'm wanting. And so, to understand this warfare, I put a little note underneath that quote in your outline. So, the warfare is not merely with the worldliness of the world, although it is, or from the deception of the devil, although it is. Be prepared that there's going to be something in you that feels like your own desires that will present the most difficult battles in this war. And be mindful, they're going to show up in moments of your life and those desires are going to travel with you and feel differently. At some point, young people in here, at some point you travel through life, most of these kids are still in children's ministry, but there's some in here. You travel through life and you hit something called puberty. And your body chemistry changes. And suddenly, you have interests that you've never had before. Things that had cooties are now cute. It just, it just changed suddenly. And there's a new interest there. There is something new of a desire in you that now indwelling sin can say, hey, now that you actually want something, let's talk. You know, when you were seven or eight or whatever, I couldn't even get a conversation with you. But now, now you're willing to listen. And then something like that happens when you get married. And you mysteriously, by God's sovereign work, join your life to another human being. And oh my gosh, what did I just plug into? And it awakens something inside of you. And all of a sudden, there's a whole new set of desires that you didn't have when you were single. And just walk through life, right? You get to that midlife moment, midlife crisis. What's happening there? Well, your hormones are again changing, so that's a little part of it. You've also, instead of just aspiring to do life, accomplish life, goals are in front of me, man, 
no ceiling, all this. And you, you get to a point where between 45 and 55, where all of a sudden, okay, kind of been there and done that. I think, I think I'm probably close to the ceiling now. Uh, and you do this life assessment thing. You kind of hire an auditor, go inside, reevaluate everything you've done. And all of a sudden, a whole new set of desires shows up. Can, can I just tell you that might end up being the reason why you're fighting with your spouse? Because there's something new that showed up. You've, you've revisited your life and you felt good about it 15 years ago. But now it just, just don't feel, what, what did I do? What, what, what did I do? And you just feel a certain way. Where's that coming from? It's a new season. And your body's changing. A lot of, lot's going on on the inside of you. And next thing you know, you don't know if you like that. You don't know if you like it. Hey, you know, kids, I sweated and worked two jobs so you could have and have and have. And look at you now. And now all of a sudden you're mad. You weren't mad before. But now you're like resentful that you've spent all this money on these kids. Or, 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 or you're retired. And you're in this weird zone where... Or all of a sudden, if you pick your binoculars up, you can see this thing called death. What will that do to you on the inside? Well, it could change a lot, couldn't it? So just these are the things, we kind of go ignorant to these things, but on the inside, they awaken things in us. They awaken desires. I want to feel more safe than I feel. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. At your age, medically, it feels unsafe. And that unsafety on the inside becomes something you're responding to on the outside, right? And it becomes part of life. So, so this, is, this is the war that's going on. So let me just ask one question here. I can't believe we'll do all this today. Let me just ask one question, and I'll stop with this smart insight from David Powelson. I need to be in touch really on a regular basis with what is it that I want, what am I after? Now, here's a unique thing about this moment, this overlap moment. If you, if you could do like a desire biopsy, you know, if there was some kind of a needle out there, we could sell it in the bookstore and you could poke it down into your desires and take out a tissue sample and look at it. You, you would, by God's design, poke down in there sometimes and pull out a tissue sample and it's healthy. It's good. It wants the glory of God above all things. You want that. And it feels like you want that. And you're in touch with that. And there could be another moment where you take that biopsy needle, you stick it down inside, and you pull out another tissue sample, and it's malignant. It doesn't want that. It wants something else. It craves and longs for and strategizes and figures out ways to get something else. Those things coexist together. And so it becomes needful for me to be aware. What's, what's the war inside doing in terms of giving me desires in life because they're showing up on the outside right outstanding article you could find this if you just do a google search for it david powelson our dear friend in christian counseling passed away a couple years ago he wrote this article x-ray questions drawing out the whys and wherefores of human behavior i don't know if i've read anything that's better than this in this category it's not too long of an article but he says this why did I do that? Why do you react that way? Use those words and that tone of voice. Think those things. Feel this way. Remember 
that particular facet of what happened. <laughs> All right, can everybody go with me there? <laughs> like, you know, an, an entire day event took place with all kinds of stuff in it, much to celebrate, but you remember this one particular thing, this one comment that was made. You don't remember anything else. Why do I make that choice in this situation? Why do we anticipate those possible outcomes? The question, why, launches a thousand theories of human nature. Why do people do what they do? Theories of what makes people tick incarnate into counseling models. Explanations are signposts to solutions. Well, take medication. Experience reparenting. Cast out a demon. Get your needs met. Don't make big decisions on bad star days. Hopefully none of you all are doing that one. Reprogram your inner monologue. Explore your pain. Presumed reasons and appropriate responses are fiercely debated. In any university library, hundreds of yards of library shelves collect and collate the debates. The Lord God has a great deal to say on the issue, weighing in with his own point of view. Counseling that aims to arise from Scripture must do justice to what God says about the whys and wherefores of the human heart. Scripture claims to search out the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Scripture that you learn by going to places like dinner and discipleship and reading your Bible often. Scripture helps us discern thoughts and intentions of the heart according to the specific criteria by which the searcher of hearts evaluates what he sees in us. So since I'm out of time, there's no way I'm going to try and do the rest of this. Um, James assumes something that he doesn't unpack greatly, but just it's a matter of fact. He jumps into the externals of life and he explains there's another layer beneath this. What causes this? What causes the quarrels and the fights among you? And he says, did you know there was this war going on within you? A war of desires and coveting that once it expresses its battle within, it becomes actions and thoughts out here. So listen, it's totally appropriate for us because biblically, this is not the only aspect of warfare. The devil really is to blame for a lot of warfare. The world is certainly influential in the warfare. So we don't, we don't neglect either one of those. We're not canceling those by highlighting this. But this is where we are most deceived because the world, we can tend to, because it's kind of not us, right? I mean, the world's not us. And the devil's definitely not us. So I have an easier time critiquing both of them. I can go to war with the devil because he's the stinking devil. And I can certainly see the foolishness and bad ideas in the world. So I can go to war with that too. But when I deal with the war within, some of that sounds like me. Some of that has reasons in it that are my reasons for the little world I'm trying to create or protect. 
And that's a little harder to own, isn't it? Isn't it a little harder you having a fight with your spouse or whoever's significant and you're relating to them? And to stop in that moment and to say, Why am, what am I after? Why am I doing this? Why am I? And it's best, I mean, I mean, emotions are like heat detectors. In the moment when there's so much anger, you know, anytime you see anger in your life, given the fact that, you know, we're still in this overlap corruption period, anger seldom is righteous anger. There is such a thing. I'm just not sure most of us are in touch with that. So when anger shows up, it's a good question. Why am I, why am I so angry about this? Well, maybe it's because of the devil. Maybe it's because of the world. Or maybe it's because of something going on in me. And so I just want to end today just by introducing us to that question. Why am I doing what I'm doing? And let me just tell you this quite honestly, and I think most of the guys who do counseling would, would completely agree. I've met people who can explain the atonement to me, who know the difference between legalism and grace, who can go down the line and present one doctrinal statement after another. And they know very little about themselves. And their marriage is full of trouble and their family's full of this and their jobs are this. And it, it finds its way into our lives. The God who wants his life and his glory to flow through our lives. Uh, the art of internal warfare, what Mr. Owen spent a lot of time writing about, is worthy of our attention. Uh, it, it's not the end statement. I'm, I'm so happy that in heaven uh, we, we won't be exploring that any longer. But here, it's not inappropriate. For God, can you help me see? Uh, James, thank you for helping me see. The war out here is because of the war in here. Lord, help me. Help me to see that. Help me to receive grace from you uh, to fight that battle. And I'm going to probably have to do that after next week. Let's stand up together. Father, help us. Holy Spirit, thank you for being in our midst. Thank you for leading us into the truth. Thank you for shining light upon the conditions of this overlap period where so much wonderful, powerful truth is available to us, yet corruption is still present. We are still affected by it where we lived in a little bit of your words, revelation through James, that there are, there are quarrels and fights that come among relationships. What if we're all honest? Those quarrels, those disagreements, those distant relationships, those sense of resentment or unforgiveness, hostility in our hearts towards others, Lord, they are warring against our worship of you. But often, Lord, they absorb us. They get our attention. We have arguments in our heads. We are trapped by how our feelings are toward a situation that happened. 
And in that moment, Lord, we're having a hard time seeing and responding to your goodness and your power and your work and your sovereignty and all the things that make you beautiful. So Lord, would you help us this morning? What I, I want to pray specifically for those who, when I use the word conflict, they identify with that place, that setting. They can put their finger on conflicts in their life. Meaningful, discouraging, difficult conflicts where perhaps relationships that have been shut out from them, perhaps a sense of self-pity and preservation has now become a, a layer, a callous layer to protect from any further harm. But Lord, the thoughts are, are not full of regenerated, wonderful desires. Lord, they are contrary. They are difficult ones. They are hostile. Would you give us the courage right now to ask the question, why do I feel that way? Why is this my response to that person? Why have I not been capable? Oh, frustrating. Lord, I'm frustrated. To be honest with God, you're not alone. But why am I not responding differently? Lord, there is truth from you and there is power by the Spirit. And I'm having such a hard time turning the corner in this conflict. Lord, would you help me to not be in allegiance with personal desires that have gone astray? Lord, maybe I want something in this that I need to be willing to not want that. I need to be okay with not having it. Lord, you have purposed something else for me. And I'm not going to have that desire. And that's okay. Because you have something else for me. So I pray, Lord, a revelation of this internal war would have an impact upon the conflicts that exist in our lives. Lord, the war outside has come from the war within. Would you conquer the inner space in our hearts, Lord, so that the outer space can be different? Lord, what effect would that have on our marriages? What effect would that have on our families, our extended relationships? Lord, what effect would that have on our fellowship as a body of Christ, if the war within would be more deeply impacted by the Spirit of God and what Christ has accomplished for us. So, Lord, lead us into these places, Lord. These are hard spaces for us. But, Lord, we want to be on an adventure with you. So, Lord, as we revisit, we'll come back to this topic as you have given us graceful resources to fight the war within but Lord, let us not learn about great, powerful nuclear weapons, but we have no idea what's going on inside of us. We think all the battles out there, it's all those people, something besides me. Lord, would you help us to receive grace in the places inside of us where we need it? Go before us, Lord, in this. We ask and we trust you will. Bless you guys. You guys watching. Amen. We miss you. Look forward to seeing you guys soon. We'll pick this up in a couple of weeks.